I'll start things off uh, by welcoming you all to our um, uh, uh, call on um, the availability or otherwise of business interruption insurance to address some um, commonly reported um, implications uh, and consequences of the current uh, market conditions. Um, uh, just to give a little bit of background, um, the people that you'll be hearing on the call uh, include myself, I'm Philip Jarvis, I'm a partner in the firm and I'm responsible for our English law insurance practice. Um, I'm going to set the scene um, and provide some big picture overview thoughts. And then um, Richard Farnhill and Russell Butland, who are senior litigators who spend a large amount of time resolving our disputes and challenges around insurance policies will take us through um, some more detailed uh, issues and learnings and things to bear in mind in uh, addressing these uh, circumstances. First point I want to make on the call is we've arranged it because we've had a lot of incoming inquiries from very different clients in very different circumstances, all responding to, to different pressures. So for example, um, disrupted supply chain giving rise to challenges in performing contractual obligations, inability to access or operate critical plants or machinery, um, responding to uh, government direction, which may impede or in some cases actually prevent contractual performance. Um, and the broader implications of um, government advice uh, to uh, workers around what appropriate behaviour is and the extent to which people are um, able to, for example, leave home. So the first point to make is that we're going to address this in high-level terms uh, because we are aware that you have very different interests and these have arisen in very different commercial contexts. The second point I want to make is a sort of fundamental point of principle around the nature of insurance. Um, and that is that um, insurers uh, live by their ability to um, control uh, and price the risk that they accept. Uh, and for that reason, uh, they have developed over generations methodologies which are designed to determine and restrict the perimeter of risk accepted. And that, that's critical for them because clearly a key part of their pricing is the cost of capital required to support their obligations in respect of particular risks. And it's essential that the perimeter of that risk is controlled for that purpose. Equally, I'm sure many of you are aware, there have been many uh, examples in history where uh, insurers have actually got this badly wrong and suffered very badly uh, as a consequence. And the classic example is uh, where um, liability type policies written in the 40s uh, were found to be available to fund uh, settlements to workers exposed to asbestos and other um, pollutants, which was never in the minds of those pricing the policies uh, at the time they were written. And the resulting strain on reserves, where there was no capital to support the amount of liabilities that were actually found to be encompassed by the policies, uh, proved to be an existential threat for, for many insurers. And so for precisely that reason, what you find when you look at an insurance policy is that the words really matter because the words are used by the insurer to ensure that they're only taking the risk that they have priced 
months at least. Um, and as we'll see as we go through um, this conversation, the detailed terms of the policies matter. Policies are often in standard form and common, at least across market segments, but different clients have different negotiating power and insurers have different appetites for risk at different points in the cycle. And um, for that reason, I'm afraid there are very few generic answers to these questions. And at the end of the day, one does need to look at the uh, specific policy question. Uh, it's also the case that uh, insurers by force have become, in some cases, very nimble at adapting to the emergence of new risks. Um, and as a general rule of thumb, um, it's reasonable to assume that insurers who were potentially exposed to losses arising from COVID-19 were amongst the earliest actors uh, to identify the risk and take steps to mitigate their own exposure. And um, Richard and Button will, will, will touch on, Richard and Russell, I should say, will touch on that um, in a moment. Then the other big picture strategic point to make is that um, insurance is an asset uh, for a, a company that, that, that is an insured person. But it's an asset of a particular kind, and it's fundamentally a contingent asset, because in reality, there will only be insurance money that can be claimed if there has been a loss which arises from uh, an event which is a, uh, and, and which represents a loss which is an insured loss within the terms of the policy. And as I, I said before, those are very, very important words because they're critical to the way in which the insurers conduct their business. And then separately, um, there must be an insured loss and the insurer does not have a valid defense in respect of that loss. Um, and insurance contracts um, uh, routinely provide um, significant uh, defenses to insurers uh, in their minds to protect them. Um, and most obviously, in relation to the inevitable asymmetry of information that there is between an insured who will generally know far more about the risk which is the subject of the insurance than the insurer. And so you have this classic phenomenon of insurers being potentially entitled to exercise remedies uh, where there has been a failure to disclose all relevant material information. So I just wanted to land that thought with you before um, we move into a more detailed analysis of, of the environment. Um, and I'm going to ask um, Richard Farnhill uh, to take over and take us through that. Great. Thank you, Philip. Um, as uh, Philip mentioned, uh, I'm uh, a litigator in the firm litigation partner uh, at ANO. Uh, and uh, over the course of one's career as a litigator, you, you get accustomed really to be kept in the background. Uh, nobody wants to go to a meeting uh, and wheel out their litigator too early because um, if you're claiming something, you look aggressive, uh, and if you're resisting something, you look too defensive. So we're we're rather accustomed to uh, to being a little bit in the background whilst the uh, the corporate partners like Philip take the limelight. Um, and business interruption insurance is a little bit the same. It's something which uh, is a little bit techy. Uh, it tends to sit. Uh, in the background of most people's programs. Um, but, but business interruption insurance really, uh, over the last two weeks, has become one of the most talked about uh, forms of cover, possibly one of the most talked about financial products. Uh, everyone has something to say about it. Brokers do, insurers do, 
the Association of British Insurers does, the, the industry body, uh, the BBC News website, uh, I saw did, the press certainly does. Uh, and every new development that you get, certainly in the United Kingdom, prompts uh, a fresh round of chatter. Uh, so when the government advised people to stay away from uh, theatres and restaurants, uh, there was a question of, well, does that trigger business interruption insurance when they uh, when they said that they would close theatres and restaurants, does that trigger business interruption? Does COVID-19 itself trigger business interruption? Um, and the difficulty with uh, a lot of the chatter, uh, certainly in the context of business interruption, and, and Russ uh, will come to deal with some of the other products, the difficulty with the chatter uh, is that it is in terms, uh, is in very general terms, uh, there's a lot of generalizations about it. Uh, and uh, as Philip pointed out, uh, opening the call, this is an area where the words really matter. There just aren't that many generic answers. Um, business in in interruption uh, is a, a highly nuanced type of insurance. And so what, what people are saying about it, the generalizations that are going around, they're not necessarily wrong as such, but they are potentially misleading because they may be correct for someone else's policy but they, they may not be correct uh, for yours. So we thought it would be helpful uh, if we confronted some of these generalizations head on uh, to, to give you some kind of guidance as to how they, they operate. Now, the first one that you hear a lot about is that business interruption only applies where you have physical damage, physical damage to plant or machinery or premises. Um, it is certainly true that business interruption is very commonly linked to property damage policies. Uh, by way of example, you often see it as part of a construction all risks uh, policy. It's technically a, a delay and start of a DSU cover in that context, but it's essentially the same thing. Uh, you often see it in operational cover for large plant, uh, uh, large installations, property damage often tied to business interruption. Business interruption pretty much always tied to property damage you find the same approach in general group-wide covers. Uh, but it is also very, very common to see with these policies add-ons, uh, add-ons to the core property damage business interruption product. And those uh, are very often expressly non-damage related. So the generalization that uh, business interruption needs uh, physical damage, that's not really right. You commonly see the two tied together but you equally commonly see add-ons, and those add-ons are what are critical. Um, the, second, uh, the second generalization that we've seen doing the rounds in the market uh, is that business interruption cover uh, for disease will only apply to named diseases, uh, and COVID-19 is, in most cases, not a named disease. Now, this is an area where uh, business interruption is really quite jurisdiction specific because there are two approaches which are taken to disease cover. Some policies will cover diseases which have been notified, a term that tends to be used, uh, notified by order of the relevant government authority. Uh, now, uh, COVID-19 has been notified in quite a number of jurisdictions now. Uh, it has, uh, I think it's been notified in the UK, for example. So in those types of policies, from the point of notification, you would have COVID-19 cover. Um, by contrast, some policies are very specific. They give a list of diseases that they will cover. 
and if COVID-19 isn't one of them, uh, either in the policy itself or in one of the endorsements, then uh, it is true to say you would not have cover. Predominantly, English law policies tend to be of the latter type. The majority of English law policies name specific diseases, uh, but that is not um, uniformly true. Uh, so you, you really need to get into the nuts and bolts of your wording. Um, either way, worth noting that you, um, you wouldn't need property damage for this add-on. Uh, you, uh, you prove that the disease is present, a covered disease is present at the premises, that that course is shut down, uh, and the ensuing business interruption is, uh, is covered by it. Uh, and equally, either way, it is just one add-on. Okay, the core product, property damage, business interruption, this is one optional extra that you could have. Now, the fact that you have this optional extra and it does not cover COVID-19 does not mean that COVID-19 is, is an uncovered risk. It may fall within a different provision of your policy. Um, and that brings us to the next avenue of attack, uh, which is what's known as non-damage denial of access cover. Uh, and what you're talking about here is that uh, there is some kind of issue that arises, the government steps in and decides uh, that uh, an area needs to be shut down uh, and therefore uh, prevents movement of people, movement of products, and that causes a facility uh, to close. Uh, and if that sounds uh, horrifically familiar, it is because that is happening the world over as a result of this pandemic. Uh, closure by government order is a classic example of uh, non-damage denial of access. Now, in this case, uh, you again don't need physical damage. Uh, it's very often contrasted with uh, damage denial of access cover. You do not need physical damage to trigger uh, this limb of business interruption. Um, it may not be tied to uh, disease. Sometimes the way you tend to see it is that disease is excluded. So you get cover if your plant is shut down by government order, you are covered for business interruption, broadly speaking. But then you will find an exclusion which says, unless that shutdown was caused by actual or threat of uh, contagious disease. So there, what you're looking for is, do you have the head of cover? And um, do, you, uh, do you have an applicable exclusion? Uh, and so, you know, just running over the generalizations that you've got, um, property damage, uh, covers, they will apply regardless of whether there's disease or government action. It's just that a pandemic doesn't cause uh, property damage. Disease covers do not require property damage, nor do they require government action. They need you to demonstrate the pathogen was present on the premises and that caused you to shut it down. Denial of access, non-damage denial of access cover, uh, does not obviously require property damage, nor does it necessarily require disease. It is simply that disease may be an exclusion. And so you can see with that overview that the generalizations which are circulating really aren't giving much guidance. You, you need to do, as Philip says, a review of your policy. We'll talk about what you should be looking for uh, in a moment. You need to go through your policy, get on top of the detail, because that is what is going to afford you cover. Um, one additional add-on, uh, which is worth mentioning, because it does come up from time to time, uh, is supplier disruption. The way that this works uh, is it basically says, well, if your plant is shut down, not because of anything that has happened to you, but because of something that has happened to your 
suppliers, and therefore you are starved of raw materials or starved of components uh, and you shut down, then you can get cover for that. And some policies do have that cover. Uh, the point to note about that is it doesn't uh, tend to be any supplier disruption that is covered. It tends to be uh, a supplier disruption which falls within one of these three heads that I've talked about, property damage, disease, uh, or denial of access, non-damaged denial of access. And so it's, it's a slightly different analysis because it's your supplier and not you, but you're asking yourself the same questions. Um, uh, in all cases, I think it's well worth noting two points when you consider your policy. The first is, um, and both relate to loss, the first is that the loss you will be able to recover under the policy will not be all of the losses that you have suffered. Now, as with uh, most insurance policies, there'll be limits, there'll be sublimits, there'll be uh, deductibles, all of which you'll bear yourself. But there will also be in the policy, in every business interruption policy, a mechanism for calculating what the business interruption is. Uh, and it's well worth uh, getting your heads around that as early as possible to get a sense of how good your cover is, how effective your cover is going to be uh, assuming you can uh, demonstrate that you fall within one of the heads of coverage. And the, the second point, and this is an evidential point really, but it will make your life a lot easier in the longer run. Um, the loss is only recoverable uh, from the, the date of the relevant trigger. Uh, so in, in this case, the case of COVID-19, that will be either the date on which the pathogen was identified at your uh, premises, or the date of the government order which prevents access to your premises. You will only be able to recover loss from that point. Now, when these sorts of things happen, I'm well aware that you have got a dozen plates spinning and plenty to keep you occupied, but it is well worth as quickly as possible identifying how your losses uh, are arising and identifying uh, the um, the losses that flow from the trigger event because those will be the only losses that are recoverable and trying to carry out that exercise ex post facto uh, is extremely difficult. If you can be obtaining the evidence at the time, that is a far, far more um, straightforward in the longer run uh, way to present your claim. Um, one question we've had is how this all ties in uh, with the Chancellor's announcement of support to businesses. Um, the, um, the straightforward answer to that is uh, it will, again, depend on the terms of your policy, and it will also depend on precisely how the Chancellor formulates uh, that support. Uh, but again, a practical point for you, if the, um, if the Chancellor's scheme or the scheme in the US or whatever scheme you're operating under uh, is offering payments quickly, then it would be sensible from a cash flow perspective uh, in most circumstances to um, to pursue them. There's no risk of double recovery because insurers will be subrogated. That is to say, they will be entitled to offset what you have recovered from what they pay, uh, provided the, the policy allows for that. Uh, and so um, you you shouldn't worry about it prejudicing your, your claim. Uh, in most cases, it won't have any uh, any impact in the longer term. It may get you cash quicker in the short term. So overall, uh, quite a nuanced cover, business interruption. 
not one that uh, probably lends itself to generalizations or soundbites. Um, any policy that you have could be extremely valuable in these circumstances. It certainly merits careful consideration uh, and in terms of generating the evidence early consideration. Um, the, uh, we'll give some pointers a little bit later on, but I'll now hand over to Russ Butland who will talk about some of the other uh, potentially responsive covers. Thank you, Richard. Just to recap, my name is Russell Butland and I'm an insurance, insurance litigator here at ANO working with Richard on a number of these cases. I'm going to talk to you now about two other types of policy in addition to business interruption policies that may respond in the current circumstances. Those two types of policies are event cancellation insurance and uh, trade credit and contract frustration cover. Those two words tend to be used interchangeably. Then at the end, I'll briefly touch on directors and officers insurance as though it is it's probably less directly relevant at the moment. We are seeing a number of queries from clients in regards to DNO insurance, and it may have a role to play in the more medium term. I'll explain what these types of policy usually do and do not cover and how that cover may apply to the consequences of COVID-19. But again, with each of these types of policies, as Philip and Richard have already emphasized, it's the wording of each particular policy that is going to be key, and much will likely turn on the wording of any particular policies you may have. Starting with event cancellation policies, these types of policies typically provide cover for defined risks relating to a scheduled event or series of events, such as the cancellation, abandonment, postponement, interruption, or relocation of the event, on an all-risk basis, i.e. whatever the cause of the cancellation, abandonment, etc., may be, but unless that cause is otherwise excluded by the terms of the policy. And you can already see that the particular exclusions in a particular policy are likely to be key to determining the ambit of cover. Clearly, these types of policies are becoming very relevant in the current scenario given the mass cancellations of public gatherings and events in a large number of countries around the world. However, sadly, event cancellation policies often do contain a specific exclusion from cover for communicable diseases. So whilst on their face they may be highly relevant to the current situation, unfortunately, a large number of them are likely to exclude cover for events cancelled as a result of COVID-19. However, again, the, the devil will be in the detail of the particular exclusions in any one particular policy. We, for instance, have seen communicable disease exclusions that express that exclude cover for communicable diseases, but only by reference to specific diseases, and they tend to be by reference to historic global disease events such as SARS or MERS or avian flu. And if your policy contains drafting that is so limited to specific named diseases, and if your policy was written, say, prior to January this year, then it's highly likely that COVID-19 will not be one of those specific diseases that is caught by the exclusion. However, equally, many of these standard exclusion clauses 
will also contain a sweep-up provision that covers any other flu variant, flu variant or other pathogenic uh, communicable disease. And sadly, the exclusions that are so that widely worded are far more likely to cover, uh, to exclude from cover losses resulting from COVID-19. And the definitions of communicable diseases are often linked to uh, probably accepted definitions from the World Health Organization, or as Richard has previously mentioned, uh, lists of notifiable diseases maintained by national governments. We've also seen event cancellation policies that have been drafted such that they cover events that are cancelled as a result of an outbreak of a communicable disease, but do not cover events that are cancelled due to a threat or fear of an outbreak of a communicable disease, which can create real difficulties for insureds attempting to assess at what, at what point in any particular country the threat of COVID-19 moved from a threat to a reality. Some other types of policies we have seen have also been drafted such that the cover provided only kicks in where the cancellation or abandonment is considered to be necessary which raises the obvious question of what does necessary mean in this context. As the COVID-19 crisis accelerates, that is clearly going to become an easier question to answer, as clearly the threshold of necessity will be met following the implementation of any government restrictions on public gatherings. However, many events will have been, quite justifiably, cancelled or postponed at a far earlier stage in the developing crisis. And it remains to be seen if insurers who have the benefits of this type of wording in their policies will take arguments along the lines that a cancellation only became a true necessity when the government mandated the cancellation of events and not before. So that again just gives you a flavour of the, uh, the type of issues that may arise and whether those issues do arise is going to be highly dependent on the precise wording and structure of your relevant policy. The types of loss that event cancellation policies cover will again be determined by the precise terms of each policy, but they will typically cover losses such as expenses incurred in relation to the cancelled event, income lost as a result of the cancellation of the event or that may have been received under contracts with third parties relating to the event, any costs and damages that might be claimed from you by the venue at which the event was to be held, and any costs you may incur in taking steps to mitigate your loss caused by the cancellation of the event. But the obvious converse of that is that the policy is highly likely to require you to take all reasonable steps mitigate your loss before you can claim under the policy. The second type of policy I wanted to touch upon is trade credit or contract frustration policies. These types of insurance policy typically provide cover for counterparty default or non-performance under a particular specified contract insured, i.e. the policy will be written by reference to a particular loan or a particular uh, contract for the supply of goods. They are, and we see them, they are commonly taken out in the context of trade financing deals, 
or in relation to specified investments or loans into politically risky jurisdictions. And whilst these types of policy have perhaps received less focus in the press in the last weeks or so than business interruption cover, clearly the dramatic effect of the current crisis on parties' global ability to perform contracts and to repay debt means that these policies may well, in fact, have a role to play in managing risk. Under these types of policies, the critical coverage trigger is usually the default or the non-performance under the contract or loan itself, and not, crucially, the cause of that non-performance. Thus, they will typically provide cover even, even where the default or the non-performance under the contract results from the imposition of government regulations or restrictions that curtail the other party's ability to perform. And it's worth here drawing a distinction between these types of policies and standard political risk policies that a number of you may be familiar with. And the standard political risk policies, the, the cover to apply, the loss must be caused by one or more of the specified political risks. And the important difference in how the cover is triggered is that those specified political risks and political risk policies are usually triggered by what you might term illegitimate acts of government, such as expropriation or the imposition of currency restrictions or export restrictions. Whereas trade credits and contract frustration policies will, will apply where the inability to pay or the non-performance results from governmental actions, even if those government actions, like obviously the ones we are seeing around the world now, are for entirely legitimate aims. However, as with all types of insurance, the extent of the cover provided will be restricted by the various exclusion clauses in each policy. In the policies we see, there is typically not an exclusion for defaults caused by communicable or infectious diseases. You tend to see exclusions that are focused on things like the use of chemical and biological weapons and the release of pathogens in the context of warlike situations, but not crucially for naturally occurring communicable diseases. However, perhaps the key limitation in the, of these types of policies in the present situation is that they usually require that the relevant default or non-performance continue for an extended period before a claim can be made under the policy. And in the policies we see, it's not untypical for that period to be six months or even longer. Therefore, they are unlikely to provide an immediate remedy or an alternative source of cash, cash flow during the crisis itself. However, they may well be relevant in mitigating the longer-term impacts, given the likely significant impact on people's ability to perform contracts and repay debt even after the immediate crisis has passed. And the losses covered by these types of policies that are typically the amount of contractual obligation that is in default, but it is standard in these types of policies for them to be structured so that less than 100% of the relevant contractual obligation 
will be insured. 90% is a typical figure. And the reason for that is, of course, so that the insured retains an economic interest at all times in performance of the underlying insured contract. And one final point to make is that, obviously, one of the most common types of contract insured by these policies are, are loans or other debt instruments. And the policies will usually only insure repayment of principal and not repayment of interest, whether ordinary or default interest. So again, this will, of course, turn on the wording of the particular policy and issue. And finally, I just wanted to say something briefly about DNO policies. The primary purpose of DNO insurance is to provide cover for claims and other legal risks and expenses incurred by directors and officers when acting in that capacity and the companies and their companies extent companies indemnify the directors and officers. Therefore, they are unlikely to provide any assistance in dealing with the immediate issues of interruption to business, disruption of supply chains, etc., and the other restrictions being put in place by the government around the world. However, it is certainly possible that decisions and actions taken by company boards in response to the present crisis will give rise to claims or other actions against directors in due course. Boards are having to deal with unprecedented issues and new regulations are being issued on a daily basis in multiple countries. Those decisions and compliance with those regulations may be the subject of closer scrutiny once the immediate crisis has passed. If that is the case, then DNA cover may well have a medium-term role to play in mitigating the impact of the crisis. And now I will hand back to Richard to discuss some of the more practical aspects of making a claim under these types of policies. Brilliant. Thank you, Russell. Um, well, obviously, Russell and I uh, have skipped fairly quickly, um, but hopefully helpfully, through a number of heads of cover there, uh, business interruption, event cancellation, contract frustration, DNO, uh, and uh, you could add others to those similar to DNO, for example, with professional indemnity, DNO cover. Uh, the actions which people are taking now may result in the medium to longer term uh, in claims against them, and, and those were the policies people will look to. So the first practical point to, to make is that your cover is potentially going to be fragmented. It is going to be spread over a number of different, and poli uh, different policies. And so the first step is simply to identify which are the potentially responsive policies uh, to identify if they're enforced, do they have unused policy limits, uh, to look at uh, what the relevant deductible and retention is. Uh, is that a per occurrence uh, deductible and retention uh, or uh, is it aggregated in some way? A lot of cases came out of the, particularly came out of the, the Lloyd's collapse uh, actually in terms of what is meant by cause, originating cause, occurrence, uh, those authorities are likely to be uh, revisited, I think, in this crisis uh, because the question of whether the cause is COVID-19 or take business interruption, uh, an order of the government or an order of a state uh, or uh, an order of a local authority is going to determine how the deductibles and retentions operate. So that immediate task of identifying the policies and what they say is an absolutely critical one. Uh, and some of you will have in-house risk managers. 
uh, an excellent first port of call because they tend to be very much on top of all of these things. Uh, most of you will have a broker, someone who arranges the program for you, but uh, really important to speak to them uh, at uh, an early stage to identify what your cover is and where your cover is. Uh, and keep in mind, not only is it spread over product lines, it will be spread over different jurisdictions. Different jurisdictions have different governing laws, potentially. Uh, so take a fairly holistic, a fairly wide view. Um, then that comes to this process that we've been I know, banging on about quite a bit on this call, uh, which is really getting into the detail of the policy, a detailed understanding of it. Generalizations just don't work in a, a COVID-19 type situation. So some questions you're going to want to ask yourself. Um, what is the governing law of the policy? Because that's going to drive, if you're going to take external advice, where you get that advice from. Um, what is the cause of the loss uh, in question? You know, so is it um, the detection of COVID-19? Uh, or is it the fear of the detection of COVID-19? Or is it a government order in response to COVID-19? Those are three different causes, and they will impact your policies differently. Um, does your policy contain um, potential heads of cover? Remember, thinking back about business interruption, you know, the property damage, the core of it probably isn't responsive. It's the add-ons uh, that you're really going to be looking at. What are the heads of cover that you have available, uh, and do they respond? If it is within the scope of cover, what are the relevant exclusions? And both Russell and I uh, spoke about this. To what extent is it excluding all diseases? Is it excluding named diseases? Uh, is it excluding uh, government action based upon a disease, fear of a disease? The exclusions, uh, insurance contracts tend to give you quite a broad, uh, a broad head of cover, scope of cover, but then hack it back with exclusions, so the exclusions are critical. How does the evolving factual situation uh, fit with the wording of the policy? You know, today, India put about 1.3 billion people into lockdown. That is a real game changer for uh, a lot of people. It, it, it generates fresh losses. It generates uh, a very different landscape. How do those developments fit within the wording of the policy? Those of you who uh, are in the United Kingdom or follow the, the UK news, will have seen that the government has gone from uh, really quite a relaxed attitude almost over the course of a weekend to, to largely shutting the, the country down. How is that going to impact uh, on your recovery? Look at notification requirements. I cannot stress enough how important these are. Uh, they can be very strict. They can be very short. Uh, and you need to comply with them because they are quite often a condition precedent to recovery. If you get it wrong, you lose your cover. So it is absolutely vital that you get these right, especially at the point of renewal of a policy. If your policy is coming up to uh, renewal, you need to make sure that these losses are locked into your existing policy because they will most certainly be excluded uh, going forward, and you do not want to lose the ability to notify them. Always worth looking at what uh, other policy conditions uh, are going to apply. Quite often, policies require you to take uh, steps, reasonable steps to mitigate. Um, always worth seeking insurer's input early on that, because otherwise what you tend to face or can face is uh, you take a step which turns out not to have worked as you'd hoped, or you don't take a step 
uh, either of which were perfectly reasonable at the time, uh, and insurers then judge it with the benefit of hindsight. Whereas if you put them on the spot now and say, this is what we're proposing to do, can you let us know if you've got any issue with it? At least going forward, you have that evidence uh, if you need it before a court or a tribunal when they say, well, you should have done this and you shouldn't have done that. So we did ask you at the time, and this is all uh, a little bit with the benefit of, of hindsight. So well worth, um, uh, well worth considering that. As I said, in the context of business interruption, look at loss, uh, how loss is to be calculated. Uh, it, may, it may track closely to your actual losses, but it may not, and it's worth knowing that at the outset. Keep in mind the point about evidence, identifying when the recoverable losses start and tracking that evidence, uh, gathering it together separately. And finally, look at any relevant waiting periods, particularly for uh, things like business interruption. Uh, to an extent, event uh, cancellation policies have this as well. There, um, there can be periods where you just have to eat the loss, and it's it's essentially the same as a cash deductible. You know, you can only recover after 30 days of delay or after 30 days of um, uh, of interruption. So uh, worth checking those. Um, quite a checklist, I know, uh, as we have said throughout this call. It really is very detail-driven. Uh, this sort of situation. This is the sort of thing that, if you get it wrong, you will be poring over uh, for months to come uh, in discussions with your insurers. Well worth taking a bit of time now to make sure that you're ticking those boxes. Um, so that's a, a kind of skip through the policies and, uh, and how you might want to approach them. Uh, and I'll hand back now to Philip Jarvis uh, just to wrap up. Thanks very much, uh, Richard and Russell. Um, and I hope um, what has gone before has, has, has been helpful to you. And I think it's pretty clear that um, there are some just fundamental propositions here, um, very hard to generalize, detail matters, attention um, and rigorous uh, thinking on relevant issues uh, is at a premium. I think um, one point that occurred to me listening to um, Richard and, and Russell's analysis is you know, in the deals that we do, it's often worth remembering that those of us who, who have the benefit of insurance often make promises to third parties um, in relation to that insurance, in relation to what we'll do with the insurance money when we get it, how we'll exercise our rights against uh, the insurer. We may make promises to project sponsors or to lending banks or to partners. Um, and for those of you who are in environments where you are in, as it were, multi-party arrangements, um, it is also, I think, important to keep in mind the obligations you have to third parties. But with that, we are um, up against our time. Um, and um, so I'm going to uh, close the call at this point. It just remains to say that uh, we are very, very happy indeed to deal with any follow-up uh, questions that you may have. Um, the firm uh, is producing guidance, which is available um, on our uh, website, both in relation to COVID-19 as it relates to insurance and many other matters as well. Please do feel free to um, take advantage of that. And critically, also, please do let us know if there are things that we, we are not covering. Um, we get a huge amount out of knowing what it is that's relevant to you um, in your businesses. So with that, I'll just um, wish you all all the best and hope that you and yours keep safe. Um, and we hope to see you all again in the analog domain uh, very soon.
Thanks very much. Goodbye.